Our scripture reading today is Daniel 1. It's on page 875 of the Black Pew Bible in front of you. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of, of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mashiel, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Beltahashazar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths, of the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief, chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I was in college, and a friend of mine, we were memorizing scripture together, and we memorized 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, and I always, uh, at that point in time, I, was, I always read the NIV, which I often do now. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And, you know, we live in a post-Christian American culture. But we do live in the Bible Belt, which means it's oftentimes easier. Our worldview is sim more similar to those in our surroundings. It's better in many ways. And if you aren't sure about that, you need to ask folks who travel a lot 
right? Chris McWilliams, Chris Wilkes, Kevin Boozer, Blake, John Hunley, they travel a lot and they visit different parts of the country and we are blessed to live here in this uh, American South, but, but we still live among pagans, don't we? Post-Christian America. And it can be difficult. Our, our teachers, our, our classmates, our co-workers, our, our colleagues, our neighbors, they don't always share our worldview or our value system. Our moral views sometimes clash, and this can make life difficult for us, for our children. We have three seniors who here in um, a few months will be graduating. They're born again, these three girls. They've been raised in households that teach a biblical worldview. They'll all go to college and they'll enter the world, so to speak. Well, how will they handle the worldly influences that they will will encounter? Will they stay committed to the Lord and be faithful and pleasing Him, or will they be swallowed up by the world and its teachings? Tax season is will soon be upon us. We'll fill out our income tax forms and Some of us will be tempted to fudge the numbers a little bit to save us money that we feel like the government doesn't use wisely anyway. How will we respond to that temptation? My two favorite Bible personalities outside of Christ are Joseph and Daniel. These two men, they lived among pagans and they lived such good lives that others saw their good deeds and gave God glory. And today we start a study in Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. just want to give you kind of some historical background. Jehoiakim was king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He was a wicked king. He reigned and ruled for 11 years. And part of his reign, he was kind of under the, the in the shadow, under the, the, the thumb of Pharaoh of Egypt and part of his reign he was under the shadow and the thumb of Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians so in 606 BC the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians as and they became the world superpower and Nebuchadnezzar came up against Jerusalem so no longer was Jehoiakim a puppet king for Pharaoh now he was going to be a puppet king for Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and this shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise them because the prophets had foretold this very thing. We saw in Micah chapter 4. We just finished the, studying through the minor prophet Micah. Micah chapter 4 verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemy. So Micah prophesied that Babylon was coming. We see that also Isaiah chapter 39, verse 5 through 7, or Jeremiah 32, 26 through 32. 
the prophets foretold that Babylon would become a world superpower, would overtake the southern kingdom. And so this first siege took place in 606 B.C. It was during this time that Nebuchadnezzar found out that his father, Nabopolassar, the king, had died. And so what he had to do, he sieged Jerusalem. They're all around the city. He's going to take the city. And he finds out his father has died. And so he has to return home to Babylon so he can be crowned king. And so what he does is he takes Jehoiakim, the king. And he takes a few of the noblemen, a few of the best of the young people, and they went back to Babylon. In this siege, we see Daniel and his three friends taken captive. So Nebuchadnezzar, he made Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim's son, the king. And Jehoiakim served for a time. But then in 597 B.C., Jehoiachin, like his father, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar laid siege a second time upon Jerusalem. And at this siege, Ezekiel, the prophet, was taken captive along with some 10,000 others. This is the second deportation. Nebuchadnezzar made Jehoiachin's uncle Zedekiah king. He ruled 11 years before he too rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. See a pattern? Don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. So in 586, the Babylonians laid siege to the city again, this time destroying the city completely, destroying the temple, and destroying the southern kingdom of Judah. They took the rest of the people captive to Babylon, leaving only the sick, the weak, the elderly, and the poor in the land. And we know from Jeremiah that they are to stay in Babylon 70 years until the Babylonians will be defeated by the Persians. And Cyrus, the Persian, will allow God's people to return to Jerusalem. And I've got a couple dates for you. I know some of you are like, these dates, I, they just in one ear and out the other. But what I want to do is show a few of these dates for you to kind of help you a little bit. Um, 930 B.C., we see that the kingdom is divided. 722, of course, the fall of the northern kingdom. The prophets foretold of that, didn't they? 539 to about 700 B.C., Micah is ministering and prophesying judgment upon the southern kingdom. 606, as I mentioned, here's the, the three deportations. 606, Daniel's taken captive. 597, Ezekiel's taken captive. And 586, the southern kingdom falls and the city is completely destroyed. And that's the third deportation. Then we'll see 539, the Babylonians be defeated by the Persians. 536, Cyrus will allow the Israelites to return to Jerusalem. That's 70 years from the time they were first taken captive in 606 B.C. And then about 530, Daniel, the prophet, dies. So the events, I sent out a text. This, the events surrounding these uh, three deportations can be seen. If you read the Second Chronicles 36 and Second Kings chapter 23 through the end of the book, uh, I would encourage you to read that. I think it will help you understand uh, what was going on, understand the context of the book of Daniel. And so we're given a lot of introductory material today, and we're going to be in this book for the next three months or so. What we're calling the study is Daniel's a kingdom like no other. A kingdom like no other. You're going to see in the first six chapters, I, I love outlines, and I would out, you can outline it very easily. Chapters 1 through 6 is faithful living in evil times. It's just a historical narrative about Daniel's life in Babylon. And what you're going to see is the kingdoms 
of the world, they're all going to fall. But the kingdom of God is going to live forever. And in chapter 7 through 12 is a forward-looking and evil time. This is prophecy, and it's about the future. But what you're going to see there as well is that there is one king kingdom like no other, and that's God's kingdom. And so throughout the book, there's a theme, a main point. The purpose is to declare that God's kingdom is like no other. And if we had to take a, a theme verse from the book, I think it would be Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. He shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And that's very important. God's kingdom is going to stand forever. You'll see that over and over and over again. But Daniel's a very practical book. We have the first six chapters, historical, uh, and it's very fun. It's, 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 um, it's fun to teach and it's fun to read. It tells about the story of Daniel and his friends in a pagan Babylonian culture, but how God used them in that culture and how they live for the Lord. But the second part of this text is, is, is interesting, a little more difficult, but also teaches us that God's kingdom is going to last Earthly kingdoms will fall, but God's kingdom is going to last. It's written in, written in the original language, Hebrew and Aramaic. And some people say, well, it's written in two languages. It must be two different authors who wrote the book, but they don't understand God and how detailed he is. In Daniel chapter 1 and then chapters 8 through 12, it was written in Hebrew originally because God is speaking to the nation of Israel in the language of his people. From Daniel chapter 2 through 7, it's written in Aramaic, for it's the language of the Gentile world. It's focusing on God's plan for the Gentiles. So look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Hopefully you'll get a notebook and take notes. We're going to walk uh, through this book just like we do all, most of our teaching is expository and we just walk through books, but it might save you some time. I think you'll be a good steward of your time to take notes. This way, that way, next time you, you study it or you try to teach it yourself, you'll have some notes to, to help you along, save you a little time in your studying. But notice how Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem in verse 1 and 2. Verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. not interesting? The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. We'll come back to that in a moment. But I think we need to conclude just from the very outset of the book that short-term success of the wicked is God's will. The Lord gave Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. But notice also that these vessels from the temple were taken and put into the treasury of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar walked into Jerusalem, went into the temple and took out vessels that were used for, for the Lord's, for worship of the Lord. And he put those, he took them back to Babylon and he put them into the temple of his God, Marduk, a false god, an idol, and what he was doing by, by doing so is saying that he was victorious and his God was victorious. And it seems that at this point that his God and his cause seem to be vindicated. His heathen God has triumphed. At first glance, that's what it appears to be saying. But we'll see otherwise as the story unfolds. The, op the book opens with this uh, apparent victory, but we'll see all throughout the book that that is not actually true so verses three through seven the first point is a pagan name doesn't a pagan person make 
Now Nebuchadnezzar wanted to bring some of the best and brightest from Jerusalem to Babylon, and he looked for young men with the most potential. And what he did is he took these young men, and they were to be taught the language, they were taught the literature, taught the culture, so they could uh, understand the culture and be used in his court. It's a three-year training program. So Nebuchadnezzar wanted to Babylonianize these men, right? Reprogram them for his purposes. And you have them, Daniel, and then Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were to be given the best education, but also the best food. And I think by, by offering them the best food, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar here is trying to defile them in any way. I think he's just trying to give them the best food available. If you think about to eat from the king's table was a, a privilege, we see that in other places in the Old Testament. David, after Jonathan, his best friend, died in battle, David provided a place for Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, to eat. Joseph, if you remember, he was in Egypt, ruler of Egypt, and his brothers came to him to buy food. And remember, he fed them from his table before he revealed his identity to them in Genesis chapter 43. So these Hebrew captives are given the opportunity to eat gourmet food at every meal. You have some people, we have some people here who like to go on cruises, and the reason they like to go on cruises is not because not like they like particularly being sunny places. They just like the food. To ride Miss Perry Lane. You go on cruises for the food. That's what we talked about. Why are you going on a cruise? Well, for the for the food, yeah, for the food. There's you got incredible food. So what what's happening here is you got this Babylonian cruise uh, with incredible food, all you can eat buffets. And that's what they were offered, and we'll return to that in a moment. But notice also that these Hebrew captives were given new names. Now, how many of you got to choose your own name? Anybody in here choose their name? Yeah, nobody gets, no one chose their name, right? And these Hebrew captives, they didn't get to choose their name either, and they didn't have any say-so in the names they were given, just like they didn't have any say-so whether they wanted to go to Babylon or stay in Jerusalem. They just had to go. Right? It wasn't their choosing. But think about this. To name someone, to some degree, is a claim to have authority over them. Adam, he named Eve. And then what did he do? He named all the animals. By doing so, it showed that he had dominion over them. And we see God giving people names, even changing their names. You think about Abram. His name was changed to Abraham. And Sarah with the A-I is changed to Sarah with the A-H. And what is God doing there? When God changes your name, usually he's letting you know of your destiny has changed. Things are going to be different from now on. And we've seen pagan kings give others new names. Think about Joseph when he became ruler in Egypt. He was given a, an Egyptian name by Pharaoh. And what about Hadassah? Anybody know who Hadassah is? Hadassah was her given name, but you know her by Esther. She too was given a new name by Artaxerxes. So this pagan king giving the Hebrews a, a new name wasn't something that was entirely new. But when the chief of the eunuchs changed their name, what he was doing was putting his he was putting the Babylon stamp of ownership on them. You now belong to us. And it helped assimilate them into Babylonian culture. When we were overseas, our family, they didn't call us Shane or Jenny or Carly or Anna Grace, Clarabeth or Seth. They didn't call us by our English names because they couldn't say it. So we had Chinese names. It was easy for them to say. 
part of assimilating into the culture. But notice these names, the names they were given. Daniel, his name actually is God is my judge. That's what his name means. But it was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Baal, which is one of their false gods, protect the king. Hananiah, his name, Jehovah is gracious. His name was changed to Shadrach, which is a command of Aku. Aku is a one of their pagan gods. Mishael, his name means who is like God. His name was changed to Meshach, who is what Aku is, right? That again, that false god, false idol. Azaria, his name means Jehovah is my helper. His name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nego. Nego is another name for their false gods. So it's interesting. You see these Daniel and his three friends. They were most likely uh, brought up in devout Jewish homes. They're given names that have significant meaning. My name is Shane. Uh, Nothing significant. My parents liked Alan Ladd, and it was a great movie back in the 50s. So I'm named Shane from a movie character. And some of you are named from obscure people or friends of the family, maybe family members. Most of our names don't have very don't have meaning, but back then names had meaning. And these these four men, they had names who um, let you know that their parents most likely love the Lord. But what happens? Their names are changed. And um, the Babylonians are tempted to help assimilate them into worshiping their idols, but it didn't work. I mean, who you are gives you your identity, not what people call you. And Daniel, his friends, they knew who they were, and they were people of God. As we proceed through the book, you're going to see them being faithful to the Lord. Being faithful to the Lord. So a, a pagan name does not a pagan person make. Second thing we see here in a text in verses 8 through 16 is Daniel avoids defilement without offense, meaning without offending those that he was uh, to be in submission to. So we go back to the king's food here for a second. Daniel resolved himself. Notice it says in verse 8, he resolved that he would not defile himself. Resolved himself. He's determined or he made up his mind ahead of time not to defile himself by eating the king's food. And I imagine that the food that they were given was much like our own food, a lot of pork, um, some shellfish, some fish, you know, a lot of red meat. Um, all of it edible, but much of it was forbidden for a Jew to eat. Now, the food laws under the old covenant were kept by God's people. And the reason possibly they didn't want to eat the food was, number one, maybe it was from strangled animals. They were forbidden to eat animals that were strangled. Secondly, maybe it, was, it, was, it had been sacrificed to idols. That would have cause it to be unclean or maybe it was just non-kosher food kosher being food with the uh, come from animals with a split hoof and chewed its cud you can see the the specifics given there in leviticus chapter 11 if you'd like to and no doubt daniel understood that eating this unclean food was part of the divine judgment of judah but nevertheless he purposed in his heart he he made up his mind ahead of time that if all possible he would not defile himself by eating the king's food and you have to think about daniel and what did he see i mean during the first deportation, there was a lot of folks, a lot of folks he knew that lost their lives at the hands of the Babylonians. 
A lot of people died. A lot of people were taken slaves and, and mistreated. And he was one of the few that had been made comfortable by being provided for uh, and educated. And common sense might tell him, don't rock the boat. You just go with the flow. Do whatever you have to do to get through this. After all, this is judgment for sin. You have no choice but to conform. But Daniel had such a love for the law of God, meaning he loved God, that he would not let himself be polluted, not let himself be defiled, whatever the cost. I think it shows us he would rather be dead than defiled. And it makes me think of another situation like Moses. You remember Moses? He was a Hebrew, but he was brought up in Pharaoh's household. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, Moses says, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So Daniel is purpose in his heart not to be defiled and not to sin. But notice his tact. He asked the chief eunuch, Ashpenaz, if he could not eat the unclean food. And the overseer that God says, the overseer of the court was sympathetic to Daniel. But why? Because God had given him favor in Ashpenaz's sight. But Ashpenaz, he feared for his life. He knew if things didn't go well, the king wasn't pleased, it would be off with his head. And so Daniel, in verses 11 through 13, asked the, the one put in charge of them if he would allow them to have a little experiment. Hey, how about this? How about... You give us only vegetables and water for 10 days, and then we'll evaluate how we're doing. Would you do that for us? God was gracious and allowed the chief steward to go along with the experiment. You know, it, it really, they didn't really care what the Hebrews ate. All that matters is that they got the most out of them, physically and mentally. So they ate vegetables for 10 days. Cauliflower and Brussels sprouts. Ten whole days in water. And it's not a plug for veganism. Some people use this, well, we need to eat, we need to be on a vegan diet. That's not definitely not um, what this is promoting here. But he did agree. And when the ten days were over, lo and behold, Daniel and his three friends looked better and more nourished, fatter, it says, than all the others that dined on the king's food. They looked better than all the others. And so Daniel's proposal not only preserved the purity of these four men, but it did so in a way that benefited their superiors. They were able to avoid defiling themselves while at the same time not offending those in authority over them. And that takes tact and wisdom, doesn't it? And God's grace. And I think if you look at this, Daniel and, and his friends are the ideal Hebrews. I mean, they're doing what the Jews as a nation did not do. These four men refused to be defiled by the things of the pagan culture they found themselves in. They are providing for us, I think, a model of biblical submission, primarily to God, but also to those under whose authority God had placed them under. So Daniel avoids defilement, and he avoids offending those in authority over him. And thirdly, verse 17 through 21, God gets Daniel a promotion. God gave them favor with Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch. Gave them favor with the, the steward who were put in charge of them, and he also gave them good health, right? The 10-day detox really, really helped them. Again, it's, can you eat vegetables only 
and gain weight? I don't think so. It just shows you God's hand at, at work. Chris, what do you think? I don't think so. I don't think so. Me neither. And notice how they did on their exams. Let's look at 17. We'll read that together. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, right, it's three years, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, all the other young men that had been brought in from the exiles, right, maybe some from other nations other than Judah, among all the ones, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the other magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. God gave them knowledge and understanding, gave Daniel ability to understand visions and dreams. Not one other young man were their equal. They stood head and shoulders above the rest, ten times better. No one in their league. They got a promotion. And Daniel was able to serve in this capacity in Babylon until they were overtaken by Cyrus the Persian. As I'm reading through this text, I just read through it over and over and over again, I, I, I begin to make marks in my Bible. Verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And then verse 17, and God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Notice God giving them favor. And as a result, Daniel is promoted. Praise be to God, right? That's what Daniel was saying. Well, how do we apply this text? We walked through it rather quickly. I gave you a lot of inf um, introductory material there. But how do we apply this to our lives? We read through verse 17 through 21, and if you're... We enjoyed this ending. It, so far, all is going well for Daniel, right? And if this account were a fairy tale, we would now be reading, and they lived happily ever after, right? But it's not a fairy tale. It's a divinely inspired historical account. Chapter 1 ends well, but we know from other texts of Scripture that faithfulness to God does not always result in immediate blessings, right? In fact, more times than not, blessings come later. And even as we were, John was leading a, Chris's small group this morning, we were talking about Micah, and there in chapter 7, he's already prophesied Babylon, we're Babylon's coming. You're going to Babylon. But then all the blessings come after that, right? But here's one of those incidences when faithfulness is immediately rewarded. So I think we need to savor the sweet success of Daniel and his three friends here as they find favor with God and with man, but also know that faithfulness doesn't always result in immediate blessings. So let's just be faithful and trust God to bless us 
later. Okay? Second thing, I think with, with every recorded incident in Daniel, what we're going to do is identify God's sovereignty on behalf of His saints. So every 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 week we're going to recognize His sovereignty. And I think that the, Jenny, the song we sang, He's Sovereign Over Us, I think that's well-fitting. We'll sing that a lot during the study, but God is sovereign. And here in chapter 1, we see Daniel and his friends finding favor in the eyes of their superiors. And we, we see this profound vigor of, of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego after eating vegetables and water for 10 days. God intervened, and God was gracious because He is sovereign. And hopefully seeing God's sovereign hand here with Daniel should help us see His hand in our lives as well. And what does that do as we think about our own lives? Think about your life for a second and how God is sovereignly blessed you and led you. I tell this story at our when we do membership dinner, but it, it's interesting how the Lord um, providentially led us here to church. Well, I was, it was a Saturday night. I was emailing my boss with the, with the mission board and putting in our official resignation. And the next morning, Sunday morning, we come here and, and our pastor that had been here for 12 years resigned. God just sovereignly moving and directing. And you have stories like that, right? As you write down, if you journal, some of you journal, if you journal, you're, you're able to see that better. I think that's good for us to do from time to time. Just pick up and journal for three, four, five, six months because it helps you identify what the Lord's doing in your life. A lot of times we don't see it, we don't recognize it, and we fail to give Him thanks for it. But God is sovereign over our lives, directing our affairs providentially. I think when we recognize God's sovereign hand in our lives, it increases our faith. Thirdly, Daniel purposed in his heart. He resolved. He made up his mind ahead of time not to defile himself. So just by way of application, have we done the same? Godliness doesn't happen by chance. Daniel was not passive in living a godly life. He was active actively seeking to please the Lord by avoiding defilement. Think about for our teenagers, have you made up your mind ahead of time that you'll not compromise your purity? You can't wait and get into the, getting a hate at a moment. Young people, look around all these old people right here, all older folks. They can all tell you, you can't wait and get in the heat at a moment. We done done it and blew it. You got a purpose in your mind. Make up your mind ahead of time. Hey, I'm going to be sexually pure until I get married. And these are things that I will not do. These are areas I will not go to. I want to be pure when I get married. If I Shane marries me, I'm going to be able to wear a white dress. My wedding. You got a purpose in your mind. Make up your mind ahead of time. That's what you're going to do. What about us employees? We got to make up our mind. We're going to be honest. Tax days, tax days coming. Right? Yeah, you ought to get the most deductions you can, but you're going to claim all your earned income. you got a purpose in your mind. Hey, I'm going to be honest in everything I do. If it costs me money, if it costs me a lot of money, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be faithful to the Lord above all things. Think about being in church. I think, I think we have to purpose in our mind that we're going to be faithful to be in fellowship with God's people. 
And what happens is if we don't purpose in our mind, it's like, well, if we ain't got nothing else going on, we come. And that's awesome. We're glad you're here. Come on. But isn't that something we need to purpose in our minds to do? Hey, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. I'm going to be in, it's worship day. I'm going to be in worship and I'm going to be studying and fellowshipping. And yeah, we need to purpose in our minds. Give an example of somebody who did that, John Bunyan. He was a Puritan during the days of the Church of England was forbidding anyone meeting outside the, the official church and they wouldn't allow anyone to preach unless you were registered with the Church of England. And so John Bunyan was leading a small church and he was arrested and he was put in prison and he was in jail for three months and he was there and after three months he was told that if he would give up preaching, he, would go home, he could go home to his family. And he was a widower, but he had remarried and he had four children from his first wife that had passed away. And one of his children was blind. Little girl. If you'll give us your word that you won't preach, you can go home to your wife and your kids. But he chose to stay in prison and he continued to choose to stay in prison. He had many opportunities to get out, to go home to his family, a family that desperately needed him. But he stayed in prison and he was there. He purposed in his heart to obey God rather than man and he spent 12 years in prison away from his family away from his wife, away from his children. He refused to give in to the demands of a corrupt church. John Bunyan could do that because he had already purposed in his heart to be faithful. We've got to make up our minds ahead of time to be faithful to the Lord. We're just going to have a time of prayer and sit before the Lord and Maybe the Lord's uh, doing a work in you and maybe you need a purpose in your heart even now, this morning. Of you're going to obey the Lord in whatever area of your life. Maybe it's sexual purity. Maybe it's honesty. Maybe it's dealing with your money. Maybe it's treatment of your family members. Maybe it's, maybe it's in how you work. Maybe you've been, you hadn't been working like a Christian, meaning you haven't been faithful and diligent. You've been a little lazy and you're making money. You're not really earning. Maybe you need to purpose in your heart that you're going to work as unto the Lord from this point on. Whatever the area of life it is, you need to make some decisions on. Let's just do that. We're just going to set for the Lord. This will be our time of dedication and helping us prepare to apply this text to our lives. Let's just set for the Lord. Father, we're thankful that you give us your word and providentially we're at Daniel 1 as a church and Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself and I pray that you would help us make some decisions this morning. 
would be resolved to obey you above all things. Father, you call us to be set apart and live holy lives. We need your grace to do that. We ask you would give it to us in abundance. And Father, whatever the area of our lives that we need to be committed in, may you give us the grace to be faithful. Thank you for Daniel's example. We thank you for giving us your inspired and erring infallible word that we can be encouraged by, empowered with, and even brought under conviction as a result of it. And Father, bless us and help us as we study and help me as I study that I would see clearly and be able to teach plainly the meaning of the text. And may our church be a better church as a result. Father, for those that are at home, some watching via Facebook even now, may you bless them. Think about Miss Mary. May you give her a lot of grace this morning. For Dan as he's home with ailing back. For Adam as he has a, a doctor's appointment tomorrow, we just ask for grace for him. Mr. Clyde, we ask you would give him strength today. Father, for those that's lost loved ones this week, may you bring comfort and, and help. Father, give us a good afternoon. There's some going to be traveling. Some that are visiting with us, we ask for travel mercies for them. And Lord, as we come back tonight, may you bring us back ready to love on one another, using our gifts as we study and pray and eat and fellowship together. May you bless our efforts. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.